Hey Dallas, thanks so much for your video asking about these 10 questions that Christians need to answer. I totally agree with you that Christians do need to answer them. And so here's my response video to you in answering the 10 questions that you asked. So question number one was, when did you become a Christian? So uh, I personally became a Christian in the summer of 1988. I was uh, four, almost five years old, and I was at vacation Bible school uh, that my church was putting on, and I had heard the gospel, and I had been raised in a Christian home, and so uh, it was at vacation Bible school when I heard a pastor talking about sin and talking about heaven and how to be forgiven that I accepted Jesus, that I believed and trusted in Jesus. 1988. Question number two. What convinced you that the Bible is true? I didn't know what you mean by this, like what convinced me when I was a kid and I became a Christian that the Bible is true, or how has it convinced me that's true as an adult? I didn't know what you meant by this, so I figured I'd kind of answer both of them. When I was a kid and I believed in the gospel, uh, I wasn't convinced that the Bible was true. Uh, I was convinced that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he had forgiven me and that if I trusted him, if I put my faith in him, he would offer me eternal life. I wasn't convinced that the Bible was true uh, before I became a Christian. Now, since then, as an adult, I've continually been more and more convinced that the Bible is true. And I'm going to answer some reasons for that uh, in the eighth question that you ask later on in the video. All right, question number three. Were you raised by Christians? And if so, on a scale of one to ten, how much do you think that contributed to you becoming a Christian? Uh, Yes, I was raised by Christians and my grandparents on both sides were Christians and I believe that that was a huge contributor to me becoming a Christian as a child. So I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, it probably was a 10 that my parents uh, taught me uh, the truth of the gospel and that I believed in Jesus. Again, I don't know where Dallas was going with this, but I want to take this opportunity uh, to make an important point and to teach my audience uh, about this. Sometimes atheists make the claim that uh, people are Christians uh, because they're born in a Christian family or born in a Christian country and they were raised by Christians. They'll say, listen, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you would be a Muslim, not a Christian, right? So you're just a product of where you were born. This is actually a logical fallacy. It's called the genetic fallacy. Uh, And this is a fallacy of irrelevance where someone accepts or rejects a claim as true or false based solely on its origin. So a person's geography or family of origin is irrelevant to the question of whether or not Christianity is objectively true. The same way that a person's upbringing, family of origin, or geography is irrelevant to the claim of whether atheism is objectively false or objectively true. Uh, We could just as easily, right, turn it on the atheist and ask them, well, you are a product of post-enlightenment 21st century Western culture, and if you were born in medieval Europe, you would be a theist. Um, That doesn't mean that atheism is wrong. It doesn't prove anything, right? It's an irrelevant argument. I don't think that as Christians, we should pose that argument to atheists. And I don't think that atheists should pose that argument to Christians. What we both should be doing is looking at the merits of the argument for why these positions are objectively true. We need to look at the reason, the logic, and the evidence for Christianity, or the reason, the logic, and the evidence for atheism. That, I think, is how we can come to see what we believe is true and have reasons why we believe that it's true. All right, question number four. 
Is it possible for someone to believe that they have a real relationship with God when they, in fact, do not? And if so, how do you know that your relationship with God is, in fact, real? Okay, so to answer the first question, yes, it is possible for someone to think they have a relationship with God and not have a relationship with him. I obviously believe that that's what Muslims and Mormons are doing. I believe that they are sincere about what they think, um, but they're sincerely wrong about what they think. They believe they have a relationship with Allah or with Heavenly Father, and in fact, they do not because they're deceived. A belief or or faith, no matter what your position is, is only as valid or strong as the object or the person you're putting your faith in. So sincerity of a belief is worthless. Um, What we all need to do is strive to believe in what is actually real, not try to be sincere about it, because we can all be sincerely wrong. So we have to strive to believe in what is actually real, what's actually true. So the quest for all of us is to discover what has the best logic, reason, or evidence for it. And I'm convinced that placing your faith and trust in Jesus is the best option based on the logic and evidence he gives. I believe that Muhammad, Joseph Smith, and Richard Dawkins are all cheap substitutes when it comes to placing your faith in someone who's left tremendous evidence for what they claimed. Question number five. There are tens of thousands of denominations of Christianity. They all disagree on either doctrinal or theological issues, many of which are seen as essential beliefs or actions for one to gain salvation. How confident are you that your denomination is the correct one, or if you don't consider yourself to be a part of a denomination, how confident are you that your personal interpretation of the Bible, especially concerning its doctrine and its theology, is the correct interpretation? Why are there so many different denominations? Why so much disagreement in Christianity if it's true? And I think that the answer to that, my answer to it, is because different people hold to different views about a variety of things. Within Christianity, there's an important distinction to be made between what I call close-handed issues or non-negotiable theology and open-handed issues or negotiable theology. So what makes a person a Christian? Well, I believe that there are five things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Uh, The first is that God exists, right? So atheists don't believe that uh, the Christian God or any God exists. Uh, I think that you have to believe God exists to be a Christian. I think you have to believe in a specific type of God who is a trinity, is a tri-unity, three persons existing in one being, that is God. Following that, you would have to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ because he's that second person of the trinity. You have to believe in the resurrection of Christ, that he actually rose from the grave after he died on the cross, which was God's stamp of approval on his message and his uh, work. And then lastly, you have to believe salvation by grace through faith is how you gain eternal life. So, Within Christianity, there are a ton of different doctrines and teachings, and and the Bible is full of tons of different books, and people have different opinions about what it says. But it's on the negotiable, open-handed issues, not the non-negotiable, close-handed issues. So this is why Christians don't think that Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians, because they don't believe in the close-handed non-negotiables of the Christian faith. They don't believe in the deity of Christ, or they don't believe that salvation is by grace through faith. They don't believe in the Trinity. So that means you're not a Christian. Those are the core doctrines of Christianity, 
And to be called a Christian, you have to believe in those things. Now, when it comes to the open-handed issues or the negotiable issues, there's a whole wide range of ideas on what the Bible is teaching and how we interpret it, right? When it comes to end times theology, there's a whole bunch of different views on what that is about and how it's going to work. When it comes to the age of the earth, right? Is Genesis talking about literal six days? Is it talking about ages? Is theistic evolution there? Is it poetic? There's a wide variety of beliefs about that. When it comes to communion, right? Do you use wine or do you use grape juice? Do you use unleavened bread or do you use yeasty bread, right? Should you have it once a month? Should you have it every Sunday? Should you have it once a day? Baptism, do you sprinkle somebody? Do you immerse somebody? Now, all of these are important issues, but they're not the essentials of the Christian faith. They're not what you have to believe in order to be saved. And I think that that's the key here. Now, what's neat about Christianity is that it allows us to disagree with one another in regards to the non-essentials. And this is actually written in the Bible that it's okay for us to disagree. I want to read uh, five Bible verses. This is from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but do not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servants uh, of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. What the Apostle Paul is saying there is, listen, we're going to have disagreeing views on certain things, dietary laws, days of the week, restrictions, all that kind of stuff. We, we can have disagreements on it, but it's not about us casting judgment on those things. Now, when it comes to the essentials of the faith, and it comes to people teaching heresy, like Jesus didn't come in the flesh, uh, he didn't rise from the dead, uh, Paul's very clear that, no, that's not Christianity, right? But when it comes to these open-handed issues, we can love each other and still disagree. Christianity encourages thinking, dialogue, and love in our disagreement. Now, I know a lot of Christians who don't act like this, but I also know a lot of atheists who don't act like this. And if you don't believe in their type of dogma, then uh, they they cast you out, right? They, they make fun of you. Actually, Dallas, you and I have had conversations about that. How some atheists say you're not atheist enough, right? So that that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what does the belief say? What does the Bible say about this type of thing? And Christianity encourages thinking and dialogue and love in disagreement. So we as Christians are free to seek evidence and to reason and then come up with conclusions about the open-handed issues. Uh, I don't believe that the Bible contains all the truth of the universe, right? It's not that big of a book. God hasn't explained everything in detail to us, but he has explained in detail the close-handed, non-negotiable issues. I'm not saying that every denomination's views are correct. They can't be, right? Now, they could all be wrong, but they cannot all be correct. So I'm not arguing that we have some type of a relativistic idea about doctrine. No, some people are wrong and some people may be right. But what I am arguing is that it's okay for us to have differences in these non-essential, negotiable, open-handed issues. The other thing is this, is that I thank God that I'm not saved based on how much of my doctrine is perfectly correct. 
I don't have to get everything perfectly correct. That is not what saves me. What saves me is the person of Jesus. What saves me is what he did in his work on the cross and in my flaws and sin and the mistakes I believe when it comes to doctrine or his word, he still saves me through that. And so our religion is not based on having doctrinal purity in everything. It's about having belief and faith in the right Jesus and what he did for us. So Dallas, to answer your question, uh, at this point in my life, I'm pretty confident that the open-handed theological beliefs of my particular sect of Christianity are true. And here's the reason. Uh, If I wasn't convinced that they're true, I would change my mind or I'd change my affiliation (laughs) and I would join a different sect of Christianity. So I, I am where I'm at now because I do think they're true. The other thing is this, I have changed my mind on a lot of open-handed issues in my life. When I was younger, I believed in what's called Calvinism. I don't believe in that anymore. I used to believe in young earth creationism. I don't believe in that anymore. I used to believe in the doctrine of illumination of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in that anymore. I don't think it's biblical. I used to believe in a certain type of election. Now I believe in corporate elections. So I'm willing to always be revamping my views and thinking through what scripture says and thinking through the logic of these things. As I do that, the core doctrines of Christianity don't change. The open-handed issues are up for debate. The close-handed issues are the essentials that make us Christians. That's where I'm at. And I actually, we, we did a whole podcast on our show, Christ, Culture, and Coffee, on why are there so many different denominations. It was about two years ago. It's episode 14, and it's called Why So Many Denominations. And if you want to go take a deep dive into that, uh, you can check that out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or really anywhere podcasts are at. And you can see kind of more of our thoughts on that. Uh, lastly, I was thinking about this with the differences in denominations and Christians not agreeing. And the same question can be posed to atheists. Uh, Why do so many atheists disagree on things in science? Why do so many atheists disagree on things in philosophy? Why do so many atheists even disagree on Jesus? I have met and talked with and read books of atheists who think Jesus is a complete myth and he doesn't exist. And then I have met and talked with and read books by atheists who believe he totally existed and we can know a ton about him. Why so much disagreement within atheism, right? Just because there's disagreement between people who hold certain beliefs doesn't invalidate the beliefs, especially when it comes to the core beliefs. So I think we have to go both ways on that. But that is a really important question that I think it's important we clarify and we think through. All right, question number six. The Protestant Bible contains 66 books. The Catholic Bible contains 73. The Ethiopian Orthodox Bible contains 81. And up until 1885, the King James Bible contained an additional 15 books known as the Apocrypha. The current Protestant Bible itself contains references to more than 30 books and letters that are not contained within it. Even Jesus Christ himself references and quotes many of these books. There have been Bibles which have included many additional books or excluded many popular books due to dispute among Christian scholars. Altogether, there are hundreds of Jewish and Christian books that at some point by some people have been considered to be inspired by God. So, how do you determine that the books in your Bible are all inspired by God? And how do you determine that the hundreds of books that are not in your Bible are not inspired by God? All right, so that's a really great question. Uh, This is called the doctrine of canonicity or the doctrine of inspiration. How do we know and why do we believe that we have the right books in our Bibles? And actually, 
actually, um, Tyler and I on our podcast, we've just done a seven week series on New Testament reliability and we tackled this question and you could go listen to those and uh, get more in depth into into what we talked about there. Um, and, and again, I didn't fact check all of the things you said there about the 30 references and the things that Jesus alluded to. Now I know in the Bible that there are quotes of other books that aren't biblical. In the epistle of Jude, he quotes the book of Enoch, which was a pseudepigraphal book, which was from the intertestamental time. Uh, we don't believe that that is a biblical, uh, inspired by God, book of scripture, but Jude quotes from it. We also have Paul quoting Greek philosophers, right? And, and Cretan poets. We, we have that within scripture. I don't think that just because Jesus or Paul or Jude quotes things means that they believed they were scripture. So I don't see how that argument um, follows. If I quote Dr. Seuss or C.S. Lewis or Carl Sagan, it doesn't mean I think that they're scripture. So I don't, I don't see how that follows, but to the point that why do Catholics have the Apocrypha in their Bible? Why do the Ethiopians include Apocryphal books but also pseudepigraphal books? Why do the Protestants only have 66 books? Uh, That is a really good question and that's something that we need to dive into. There are a lot of reasons for it. We did a whole thing on Catholicism and on the Apocrypha and should it be in Scripture and should it not. Actually, nobody regarded the Apocrypha as Scripture. The the Jews don't. Christians didn't until the mid-1500s when the Reformation happened. And it was then that the Catholic Church Pope said, no, we are accepting that as scripture. And it was in a response to the Reformation because there's one book that refers to an afterlife purgatory type place. Martin Luther was arguing against purgatory and selling indulgences. And so the Catholic Church conveniently said, oh, we're going to make this scripture. Even though Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, said it wasn't and nobody had accepted it prior to that as scripture, uh, they deemed it scripture in the 1500s. So I think it's a little illegitimate and it was because of what was going on with the Reformation. Now, as far as the Ethiopian church, they have a whole bunch, there's a bunch of different reasons for the books that they have in it. And I can't dive into all of that right now, but this is the point I really want to make. Whether you are an Ethiopian Christian, whether you are a Roman Catholic Christian, whether you are a Protestant Christian, all three of those groups completely unanimously agree that the 66 books in the Protestant Bible are scripture. So that's a big point. Those should be set aside and and you, you can't argue, well, nobody knows what scripture. No, we all are settled that those are God's word and they are inspired by God and their scripture. So the fact that other people add stuff doesn't invalidate the fact that everybody in Christendom unanimously agrees that the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are God's word. Now, how do we know they're God's word is a different question. Um, There's a lot of reasons. One of them is because God talked about prophets coming and speaking in his name, and the Old Testament is prophets speaking for God, and we have the words that he told them to write. We have the words he inspired them to write written down. When it comes to the New Testament, uh, Jesus told his disciples that he would send the helper and bring to remembrance all the things that he had said, and uh, they were to be his witnesses to the whole world. And that's what we 
we have in scripture. So that's why New Testament books actually had to be written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle because we wanted what's called apostolic authority. It also meant they had to be written in the first century because that's when these guys lived. They also had to be orthodox with the teachings of the churches that the apostles went out and spread all over the Roman Empire. If there was something that they hadn't taught that snuck in, people would go, no, 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 that's not exactly what they taught us and that's not what we've held to since the beginning. So there's a lot of reasons we hold to these books being from God. Um, and uh, just because other people have quoted books uh, within that doesn't mean those books have to be scripture. Just like I know, you know, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, they quote the Bible, but they don't think the Bible's inspired scripture. And I'd never make that claim on them just because they had quoted it. One other thing that I think is interesting with this is that even if the Bible isn't inspired in errant word of God, which I, well, I believe it is, but I don't have to believe that in order to be a Christian. I could still look at these books as historically accurate books that are saying something and piece together very, very convincingly that Jesus rose from the dead and trust in that. So Christians don't need the Bible to be inspired by God in order to trust it. Just like Dallas, you don't need the books you've read that have convinced you to be an atheist to be inspired by anybody in order to believe them and to think that they're trustworthy. So the inspiration argument, um, try, atheists trying to deflate inerrancy or infallibility argument of scripture, um, it, it's kind of, a, I think it's a waste of time for atheists because it doesn't invalidate anything because these are still books that are historical documents, um, just like you read stuff that you trust. So um, we don't have to have books that are perfect in order to trust them. We just have to have books that are valid and that are logical and that give good evidence that correlate with reality. Question number seven. Many times the Bible refers to the earth as being flat, the sun as orbiting the earth, and the sky as being a dome, as well as the earth sitting on pillars and being stationary. Christians typically don't believe that the Bible is being literal in these instances. Do you believe that the creation story in Genesis is also an instance where the Bible is not being literal? Or do you believe that it is a literal account of cre the creation of the universe? And if so, how do you determine that the Bible is being literal in this particular instance, but not in other examples? You're right, the Bible does talk about certain things about the earth, and one of the reasons is because God speaks in language that we understand, and and we we comprehend at the time and um, when the Bible was being written um, people didn't have a extensive understanding of how the solar system worked and so God was explaining things to them in words they'd understand it's called anthropomorphic language it's like where David in the Psalms will say the mighty arm of God well we don't believe God has an arm it's a metaphor to talk about the strength of God or that the Lord is a mighty fortress we don't literally believe he's a fortress right it's a metaphor to talk about he's a place of refuge and safety so that's what I chalk up those two now your question about the Genesis story like why don't I just think that that is poetic right or non-literal i don't think it's non-literal i don't think that genesis 1 and 2 is meant to be a scientific explanation of how the origin of the universe started it had a different purpose than that but i do think it's literal in the sense that god created things in the order he says he created them and that adam and eve were historical persons and i believe adam and eve were historical persons because in romans 5 paul makes this whole argument about how jesus is the second adam and he makes that argument 
argument based on the first Adam, how death spread to all men because all had sinned through Adam, and that righteousness and eternal life can come through Jesus, the second Adam, the new Adam. So Paul believed Adam was a historical person, and so that's why I believe he was a historical person. Now, if the creation account isn't literal, but it's poetic, and I'm convinced that it's poetic because I, I have an open mind about it and I like to study and think through things, if I get convinced that it's poetic, not literal, or even if I get convinced that theistic evolution is true, there are a lot of Christians who are theistic evolutionists. If I become convinced of that position, it doesn't change anything for me in Christianity. And that's because Christianity isn't sitting on the precipice of what I believe about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's based on, did Jesus rise from the dead? And that's where the evidence is strongest. And that's where my hope is. And so if I have to have a paradigm shift to believe in a universe that God allowed to evolve like Darwin taught, I still have Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So it literally changes nothing for me. Now, I don't believe in evolution, and there's a lot of reasons why, not just because the Bible uh, says the things it says in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but for other reasons. But even if I change my position on that, it wouldn't wreck my faith because Jesus rose from the dead, even though God used an evolutionary process to bring about humanity. So it doesn't really change much. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that Christianity is true. Question number eight. In your opinion, what are the three best proofs that the Bible is true? And just to clarify, this question is asking for the three best proofs of the Bible specifically and not theism. All right, so I, there's a lot of reasons why I think that the Bible is true. One of them is the prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. Um, a lot of people talk about how there's 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus, and that is a mathematic impossibility unless there's some divine force behind it. Now, I just want to point out a couple of them that I think are pretty interesting. In Isaiah 53:9, it says that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This prophesied about the type of death Jesus was going to have. And even though he was assigned a grave with wicked men, which actually is how the Roman guards would bury somebody who was crucified. There was just mass graves. Sometimes they'd let family come and take them, but usually it was just criminal graves where mass burials were happening. Even though he was assigned a grave with the wicked men, he was with a rich man in his death. We know Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea a rich man. It was a brand new tomb. It was nice. So this is predicting the type of death Jesus would have. Uh, it's very difficult to um, control where you get buried after you die. And so it's not something Jesus could have self-fulfilled. It's something, I think, pretty miraculous. Now, uh, Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC. And so some people say, listen, this, you know, this could have been fabricated after the time of Jesus' death. Uh, it, it couldn't have been, actually. That's just a false statement. And here's why. Uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found this thing called the Great Isaiah Scroll. Uh, this scroll consists of pretty much the entire book of Isaiah. And this verse that I just read from Isaiah 53.9 is actually in there. And the Great Isaiah Scroll that we have that you can see today dates to 125 B.C., so that's about 150 years before Jesus died and was buried in a rich man's tomb. So it wasn't prophesied after and made to look like he fulfilled it. We literally have proof that this was prophesied prior. Also, there's another prophecy that's like that from Micah. 
Um, Micah 5 2 and it's about Jesus being born in Bethlehem and this is a really interesting one because Micah says uh, Bethlehem Ephathra not just Bethlehem and the reason for that is because there were actually two Bethlehems in Israel there is Bethlehem of Zebulon and Bethlehem of Ephathra that is fascinating that he was so specific to talk about this Bethlehem of Ephathra and that is in fact where Jesus was born Now, Micah lived in the 8th century BC, uh, the same time period as Isaiah, and among the manuscripts found at the Dead Sea Scrolls is a scroll of the 12 minor prophets, and in it we have this verse from Micah 5.2. And this scroll dates to 50 BC, which is about 83 to 85 years before Jesus' death, so that means it's about 50-ish years before his birth in the specific Bethlehem that he was born in. These prophecies about Jesus and the fact that we have proof that they existed before he was born uh, makes me trust there's something to this book. This is pretty fascinating. It's way better than Nostradamus. It's very interesting. So is it just good guessing or is there something more behind it? Another reason I believe that the Bible is true, especially in regards to the New Testament, is the willingness of the apostles to die for the claim that this guy rose from the dead. Uh, It is a fascinating claim. They all said unanimously, every book of the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and many of the apostles were willing to die for that belief, which means they didn't make it up because you're not gonna die for something you know is a lie. In addition to that, they didn't get sex or money or fame in their time from teaching this. They actually got beaten and imprisoned and eventually killed. So the question that we have to ask is, why did these guys preach this? And it really seems like they believed it. Why did they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, they all claim it's because they actually saw it with their own eyes multiple times over a period of 40 days where Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of them collectively, a whole bunch of them individually, and 500 people at one time, which eliminates group hallucination. So the disciples' willingness to die for this testimony they were given really makes me think that there's credibility to the documents they wrote because there's no motivation for why they would want to do this. Even atheist scholars agree that the New Testament apostles, that the disciples of Jesus, believed they had seen him risen from the dead. Paula Fredrickson says that. Gerd Ludemann, a German atheistic New Testament scholar, says that. They all agree these guys believed that they seen him risen from the dead. Now, they don't think he actually did rise from the dead, but they, the evidence is so strong that the disciples seem to believe that and were willing to give their life for that belief. The third reason I think that the Bible is pretty legitimate is because of what are called undesigned coincidences. And these are in the Old Testament and New Testament, but it screams that these books were written by people at the time that were uh, observing the events that were happening. All right. So for instance, uh, in the Gospels, there's like details left out of certain passages that when you read a different Gospel, the detail of the same story actually makes sense of that passage. Um, <clears throat> one of them would be that in, in uh, a Gospel, Jesus turns to Philip and he asks him, hey, where can we get food for all these people? And you go, why Philip? Like, he's hardly in the Bible at all. Like, he's hardly ever talked about among the disciples. Why does Jesus pinpoint him at that point? Well, if you go to a different gospel, it talks about the location they were at during that event, and they were in Bethsaida. And then if you go to another place in another gospel, uh, you see that Philip was from Bethsaida. So you piece these things together and you go, oh, it makes sense that you'd ask the guy whose town they were in where you get food for all these people. 
There's tons and tons and tons and tons of those things that scream, this is eyewitness testimony. We've done shows on this on our podcast. You can go check out Undesigned Coincidences. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. In the Old Testament, we see things like this too. Like um, when Joseph... Uh, is awarded by Pharaoh for for interpreting his dreams and saying that they got to stock up for seven years and then in the lean seven years they'll have enough food. Uh, The Pharaoh gives him a signet ring, he puts a royal robe on him, and then it says and he gives him a gold necklace. Well, during that time period, getting the the gold of valor or the necklace of valor was like getting uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was a huge deal in Egyptian culture to get this gold necklace. For years, I just read past that in my Bible. It's like, oh, he got some treasure too. That's really cool. No, that's not what it's talking about. This was a specific, important thing. And we actually see people in in Egyptology and in Egypt history getting this award. I mean, it's carved into reliefs and hieroglyphics, that this was a big deal. And it just so happens that whoever wrote Genesis knew about that cultural issue in Egypt because they were there at the time it was written. There's so many things like that in the Bible that just scream it's written by the people it says it's written by and that it was written by eyewitnesses. So those are three of the many reasons I believe that the Bible uh, speaks truth. Question number nine. Is it better to One, silence the critics and avoid listening to criticism. Or is it better to engage with critics and refute criticism? Which of these two options do you find to be the approach that most Christians take? Well, obviously, I believe that it's better to engage with critics and to refute criticism, but to do it with gentleness and respect. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us we're supposed to do. That we're supposed to give a defense of the hope we have within us with gentleness and respect. And honestly, Dallas, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about our conversations um, on the podcast, but even outside of that through Messenger and on the phone is like, you're very respectful to me. You're very kind to me. You're not mean-spirited. And I hope that I'm not like that towards you. I want to exude love and kindness towards people because I believe people are created in God's image and they're valuable intrinsically, not because of what they believe, but because of what they are. And the scriptures tell me that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, to love my enemy, to love all people. And so that's one of the things I want to do. But as I do that, we do need to engage with criticism and we need to think through it and we need to understand why do I believe what I believe? Is it just a fairy tale that I was taught by my relatives or do I have reasons to believe these things? As far as your second question, uh, unfortunately, I believe that most Christians take the first approach and avoid listening to criticism. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to engage it. They don't want to think about it. And this is unfortunate, um, but honestly, I think that most people do this, whether they're Christians or atheists or Muslims or Mormons or Hindus. I think this is kind of the knee-jerk reaction of most people. Most people ignore arguments that go against their beliefs because it's uncomfortable to question your own beliefs. It's uncomfortable to invite doubt into your life. Now, I think that we should hear the other side of arguments and we should engage our doubts because the goal isn't to prove that our position is correct. The goal is to discover what is true. I don't want to just dig my heels in because this is my position. That is so stupid. I want to make sure my position's real because I want to believe in reality. All right, question number 10. And lastly, are you open to the possibility that your beliefs might be wrong? 
Yes, I am. I am open to the possibility that my beliefs might be wrong. And the truth of it is, I want to believe in what's real. I don't want to believe in myths. I don't want to believe in fairy tales. If Islam's true, I want to become a Muslim. If atheism's true, I want to become an atheist. If Mormonism's true, I want to become a Mormon. Because I want to believe in reality. I believe Christianity's true. And I follow it because I believe it has the best evidence for it and it answers the big questions of life better than any other belief system, better than any other worldview, better than any other philosophy that's out there. Now, the real question, Dallas, that I think would be an important one for you to ask, I think these 10 questions were good, but the real question that I would challenge you to to look into is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, I know what a lot of atheists are thinking right now is like, I'm not going to even engage that question because I've already made up my mind that the supernatural doesn't exist. Therefore, people can't rise from the dead because supernatural things don't exist. Miracles don't exist. Now, let me ask you with that, who's being closed minded at that point? You've already dug your heels in on a presupposition. Why don't we have an open mind that maybe your beliefs are possibly wrong? And let's go where the evidence leads. That's honestly what I want to do. And that's what I want all people to do. Investigate the evidence and follow it to where it leads. Dallas, I love you. Uh, I like what you're doing. I like talking with you. I love our discussions. And honestly, I'm thankful for how you go about discussing these issues. You've always been kind-hearted to me. You've always been respectful to me. And for that, man, I am very, very grateful. Let's both keep being open-minded and let's both follow the best evidence and the best reason to where it leads. Thanks for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more people.